All right, I encourage you to get your Bibles and turn to Psalm 139 uh, this morning. We're going to uh, depart from our series on Hebrews for Mother's Day and uh, just spend a time in a text that's been uh, really moving and touching to my heart over the course of this last week as, as I've studied it. This psalm, I think, will be a great reflection for us at this time. Uh, it not only talks about God's knowledge of all of us uh, in our mother's womb, uh, but it describes God's knowledge and care for us in one of the most personal poems of the entire Psalter. Uh, our consideration of this psalm is especially important here because David intended this psalm to shape the way the entire congregation would view God. Near the beginning of his magnanimous book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, in the very first chapter, he describes the importance of one's view of God. He said it this way. He said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Everything that we do in life is somehow related or connected to how we view God. The great contemporary preacher Stephen Lawson says it this way. He says, tell me what you believe about God and I will tell you the direction of your life. So men and women, as we come to this psalm that reflects on God's character, we come to a very important topic. We must get this right. We must get God right. For if we are wrong here, we will be wrong everywhere. If we have a low view of God, it will affect our community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It will affect our worship. It will also affect our mission or evangelism. And I, I won't get into all of this, but if our view of God is low, it affects every area of our lives. If, however, we are struck by the absolute sovereignty of God, if we have a high view of him, then it empowers us in every area of our life. As I said, this psalm portrays a high view of God. The psalm comes in four stanzas of six verses. Uh, that's how it's arranged. Each stanza uh, emphasizes something about a quality or a characteristic of God and ends with a personal response from David based on that characteristic. This morning, we'll look at just the first three of these stanzas, and so we'll look together at verses 1 through 18. So we start into stanza one. This stanza concerns God's knowledge. And you can see that David is focusing on the knowledge of God by the vocabulary that he uses. For different forms of the word to know are used in this passage, these six verses, four times. So if you look in verse one, two, four, and six, you will find that in your English Bible. Now the first two stanzas all have the same threefold arrangement. It starts with an opening statement or question. David then goes to an example about that characteristic of God that he's trying to emphasize, and he ends with a personal reflection. And so let's start in stanza number one, and I want to read this whole stanza. Look at verse one. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The opening statement in the stanza comes in verse 1. Here David describes God's knowledge of him using two verbs. He says, you have searched and known me. Now, sometimes the English idea of searching, when we hear that word, we think that someone or something is lacking or trying to acquire something. That English translation is a bit unfortunate here because that is not at all what David is saying about God. You see, it's important for us to know that God knows everything immediately, perfectly, and equally. God never has to uh, discover something. God isn't surprised by anything. He never finds out anything, for he knows all things immediately. Here, David, I think, reveals in verse 1 in this opening statement that God has precise and exact understanding of, uh, of us, of him. Then in verses 2 through 5, to help us understand more of God's knowledge, he gives us examples of the way that God knows him. For God knows, he says, when he sits down and when he rises up. This is a, a literary technique here where uh, David is using two extremes to capture a whole range of possibilities. He says to God, you know when I'm sitting down and when I'm walking and, and you know everything in between. Every other posture I could possibly be in and, and the way I go about my life, you know it all. In verse 2, he illustrates with uh, some other examples that God discerns all of our thoughts. He knows all our thoughts. One commentator said it this way. He says, Yahweh can decide to look not only into my house, but into my mind and sees not only what I do, but what I plan to do or want to do. And so as you look in verse 2, you see this in your Bible. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts. You know my thoughts from afar. I think that last little description there from afar is not describing the distance that God is away from someone. It's, it's more a, you're a far away in time. And I, I think that the point here, uh, I agree with Alan Ross, who says this is from a distance in time, meaning beforehand. God knows all of my thoughts well beforehand. Then in verse 3, we learn that God knows our ways. God searches and is acquainted with all my ways, David says in verse 3. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Verse 4, you know all of my words. There we find in that verse that before a word is even on our tongue, before it's formed, the Lord knows it all together. That's the sort of knowledge that God has of us. But then finally in verse 5, as he's describing this knowledge of God, he says, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. So God is hemming him in. He's before him and, and behind him. It's, it's like God is putting his hand on him. The imagery here is of someone putting their hand over something, like trapping uh, a bug or an insect on a table or something. God has that sort of pervading knowledge of David. 
God knows everything about him immediately, thoroughly, completely, and perfectly. And that leads David to a response in verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Here, David's immediate response, his first personal response is awe or wonder. The word wonderful here means extraordinary. It's surpassing. These, these thoughts are extraordinary, surpassing. What David has been able to understand so far about God's perception and his knowledge of things is completely overwhelming to David. By the way, I think that this uh, can be a helpful a thing for us to observe here. And that is uh, when, you, I, I think you know when you're beginning to really see and get to know God. When you're just beginning to really get to know and see God for who he is, uh, uh, you, will, you too, like David, I think, will be in awe and be overwhelmed. So when you study the text of Scripture, you begin to dig into the nature of God and his perfections. I think you too will be overwhelmed in your meditations and your thoughts concerning the perfections and the plans of God. So as you're looking at this first stanza, I think uh, the emphasis is on knowledge. Four times the word is used, three times of God's knowledge of us. And then David tells us this knowledge is just too overwhelming to him. But this response leads to the second stanza, verses 7 through 12, as we just survey through this text quickly. Verses 7 through 12, David approaches the topic of God's presence. It was his knowledge before, now his presence. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light shall uh, about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is light with you. If David's first response to God's knowledge of him was wonder and awe, it was too wonderful for him, his second response is flight. It's uh, the desire to run away from this sort of all-pervading knowledge of his being. Derek Kidner, the, the old commentator, reminds us here, he says, the, the impulse to flee from God's face is as old as the fall in the garden. This is a way we often are tempted to respond to the all-pervading knowledge of God. I think this section says up like the last as an opening statement with some examples and then a personal conclusion of David. The opening statement is in the form of two questions in verse 7. Where shall I go from thy spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? These two verbs in this verse capture David's imagined response to God's knowledge. Two verbs are go and flee. I think sometimes God's intimate personal knowledge of us is endearing to us. But other times, because of the nature of our own sinfulness, it is alarming and we want to flee. But to more fully portray God's presence in this passage, uh, David gives some examples of where he might go to flee away from God in verses 8 through 10. So the examples are there. 
I summarize the ones in verse 8 by David saying that uh, he considers fleeing vertically. So you look in verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The scriptures uh, make it very clear that God is in all of these places. Of course, God is in heaven above. Uh, the, the, The scriptures say the Lord is upon his throne in the heavens. He sits enthroned over the earth. God has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Of course, God is in heaven above, but the the same is true of Sheol. God is there as well. The word Sheol is a Hebrew word that's transliterated into English. And it's a bit difficult for us to know exactly uh, what what David is talking about here. I think that David is simply just describing the abode of the dead, the place where the dead would, would live or abide in the old covenant system in the Old Testament. I think he's describing the grave here. And so the, the point that he's making here about the presence of God is, uh, so he considers the farthest points of space uh, where he might potentially be able to flee from heaven above down to the earth below. But in every one of those places, God is. Then he considers if he might flee horizontally in verses 9 and 10. If he goes from the farthest points east that he can imagine to the farthest points west, God is in all of those locations as well. That's when we come across this phrase in verse 9, uh, the wings of the morning or the wings of dawn. Here with this expression, uh, David is uh, talking, I believe, giving an analogy to describe God, and, and he's using the, the way light travels at sunrise. Okay, so he's referring to the speedy way that sunlight moves from east to west across the, the countryside or across the world. Perhaps you've seen a sunrise before. Uh, now, I, I think I should give this caution. Uh, maybe you're a teenager listening to this and you enjoy your sleep. Um, I'll just describe it here. Sunrise is a time uh, when the sun comes up like a bright yellow ball, right? And, and it, it, it starts casting light um, all around uh, the world. It usually happens about 6 or 7 a.m. You, sh- you should really stay up some night all night and, uh, and wait to see it uh, sometime. So what David is saying here, he says, if I could fly at the speed of light from east to west, the speed of the sun as it breaks forth uh, at dawn... Uh, and go the whole way to the end of the Mediterranean Sea, even there, the text, you keep, just keep reading in the verse, in, in verses 9 and 10, even there, God would lead him and hold him. This leads to David's personal response in verses 11 and 12. Look in your Bible at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Here, This leads to uh, David saying that even if he finds the darkest hole that he can in earth, he realizes that God would still see him. And his personal conclusion or response here is even the dark is not dark to you. That's what he says. That is, God can see in the dark. Here, David, 
is amazed at both the personal knowledge and the personal presence of God in every place. And this leads David to issue this pronouncement about God seeing even in the dark. Oh, this leads to a third stanza. And for this Mother's Day, I think this stanza is especially fitting for us. So I want to look with you at verses 13 through 16 uh, to see uh, here how David considers how God cares for each human being before he gives a personal response. I read these verses in a moment, but I think that, that David gives two examples of God's care for human beings before he closes with a final personal response. Verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden for you, for when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, you saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. So we look at God's care that David is emphasizing here. I think he first demonstrates that God, God's care for us starts at the very beginning of our earthly existence. That's uh, how I take verses 13 through 15. Here, God's care for us while we're in our mother's womb is found with many key words. It's, it's, it's found in words like he formed us. He knitted us in the text. Later on, he says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He made us. He, he works for us. He sees. So I take uh, this phrase down in verse 15. My frame is not hidden from you. He sees our frame in the womb. And, and then later on, he says he weaves things together in the depths of the earth for us. In these verses, David considers how God gives individual care to the creation of all human beings. Before we close, I want you to notice a few things about this care that have just been so touching to me. First, I want you to see how he describes the place of our birth. In verse 13, in the middle of the verse, he says it was in his mother's womb. I think this is the most straightforward description of our place of birth. But then in verse 15, he says that it was in secret. In secret, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Here he describes the mysterious hidden way a baby's growth occurs in the womb of a mother. If you think about when this psalm was written and the psalm this day, inside of the womb would have been something remote or completely hidden from human eye and perception. We got some things in our world today that gives us a little bit of a glimpse for how babies are formed in the womb, but they of course had none of those things. So he says, the place of the birth is in the mother's womb in secret. And then at the end of verse 15, he describes it as in the depths of the earth. 
So all these places, he uses that little preposition in, and he's telling us where in the mother's womb, in secret, in the depths of the earth. Here I think David is drawing an analogy between the darkness of the mother's womb and the deepest recesses of the earth. So Alan Ross, one commentator in the Psalms, says it this way. He says, in the psalmist's day, inside the womb would have been as remote to the human eye as any region of the netherworld. And so we notice first here the place of our birth. But then notice what God creates and sees. Uh, The objects of God's creation in these verses uh, are found in a threefold description or part of the poem. They all start with the word my. And you can see them in verse 13, 15, and 16. And so just very quickly in verse 13, he says, you formed my inward parts. Here David is saying, you have given me my unique inner organs, my veins and arteries, my muscles and other unique qualities of my human personality. God, you've formed all of my inward parts. Later on, though, in verse 15, he describes it this way. My frame, my frame was not hidden from you. Here he's describing our skeletal structural structure, every bone whether small or great. Like this is something we don't often think of. We, we might occasionally think of our bones when we like break them. Or maybe uh, sometime whenever we're just looking at our hands and how they function, or our fingers, or feet and toes. But we don't normally think about the fact that God specifically shaped and fashioned every one of our bones, our skeletal structure. But then also in verse 16, he describes it this way. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. This is another part of God's creation of of human beings. God's eyes saw us in our mother's womb when we were still an unformed substance. I think this probably refers to us when we were just a shapeless embryo. Here David is describing God's act in creation as forming our genetic substance, our DNA. And so God said, or David says to God, God, you, you formed me, you framed me, you wired every part of me when I was in my mother's womb. And men and women, this is what God does for every human being in the womb. He does But then notice as well what God does specifically at verse 13. I just love this part of the passage. It says, for you formed me in my inward parts. And then he gives this metaphor. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Here before we make some final applications on Mother's Day, I want to show you what God does with all of these body parts that he forms. The language here is metaphorical. God is, it's, it's like God is knitting or weaving together these things in the womb to create the human being. This is what God does. I think this beautiful poetic imagery portrays God as a skilled weaver working on every human being at the beginning of his life in his mother's womb. Here the verb knitted compares the formation of each baby's body to the weaving of a beautiful tapestry or something like that. So God weaves together 
the network of veins and arteries in the little body. God spins the internal organs of every person and shapes and fashions him or her for the life that they're going to live. God knits the muscles and the ligaments and the joints and the bones together and he gives flesh and skin to each human being. What a beautiful picture of God's care for us. I want to stop and just make a few applications for us here at Colonial. In light of what God says here in this text about his care to shape and fashion every human being in the womb, how do you think that we should feel about abortion? Abortion is a wicked practice. Now, if God has forgiven you of this sin, then don't let anything that I say here put any sort of guilt on you. You are under no guilt because you are in Christ. The scriptures say there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're just coming off the Hebrew study and it says, for by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So all of our sins are under the blood and covered by Jesus so that we stand in his righteousness alone. Having said that, men and women who today interfere and take the life of unborn babies, uh, that practice is an abomination that God won't take lightly. It is wickedness to invade the secret private place to destroy the life that God is weaving or knitting together. And so as a church and as believers, we must pray for the unborn and work to protect them. God cares for every one of them and has a plan for them. And may God help us to put a stop to abortion, not only in this country, but beyond. This text, if properly understood, talks about the sanctity of every human life and being. This is why I think as a church, we should stand against any unlawful taking of a human life or being, no matter what the motivation for that would be. Whether it's racially charged, as some things we've heard about in the news recently, are, or whether there's some other terrible motivation be behind it, greed, thievery, whatever the, the motivation, if it's an unlawful taking of a life, we should stand against that. But I want to take this text and I want to make a, a completely different application here for a moment. If you're listening to me today and you've been adopted, what do you think this text has for you? How might it encourage you? Well, while you were in your mother's womb, God took this care over you as well. He knit you together. He created and designed you perfectly for the life that you were to live. You are not inferior in any way. Just imagine your creator God doting over you as he perfectly designed you for the life that you would live. 
and would care enough to bring parents into your life to love you as well. So may your heart be encouraged by this text as well. Our God cares for you. There's still others in our assembly who come to Mother's Day grieving because they're struggling with infertility. Well, what does this text have for you? Well, God loves you. And there was a time when he was weaving and shaping you in the womb and preparing you for the life that you live for his glory. He loved you from the time that you were an unformed substance and his grace and care continues for you today. Perhaps some of you are considering adoption or fostering. If that is the case, can you imagine, can you imagine the personal care that God is demonstrating to this little baby or child that he intends to bring into your life through adoption or fostering? May your heart be encouraged today. Our God cares for you. So regardless of your life situation, no matter what difficulty you experience, these verses about God's care for us at the very beginning of our lives should encourage us. Perhaps you're a mother today suffering under the weight and the load of parenting during this time. Might this passage encourage you with how well God knows you and loves you. Perhaps you're a single or a father or a widow or a widower or a child and you're just overwhelmed at something. I think this passage can encourage any one of us in what we're going through because it gives a high view of a majestic God who stoops to care for the creation of every human being. But there's a second way that God cares for us found in this text. I encourage you to look down in verse 16. Look at the middle of that verse. It says, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Not only does God care for us, when we're in our mother's womb, his care extends both before and after that. In this text, David describes God as having a book where every one of our days are written out. These are the days that God formed for us. And God knew all about each one of these days before we even physically existed, before we ever lived. So David says here, God has a book and it has all of our days written down. And so men and women, the, the one who knits you together has preplanned the perfect number of days for you. You won't live one day shorter than God has preplanned for you but you also want, won't live one day longer. My heart goes out to many people in our body over the course of the last few weeks who have lost a loved one. There uh, has been a significant amount of death in our congregation over the last few weeks. And I want to reassure you of our prayers for you. The body of Christ is praying for you and sustaining you with those prayers. But I think this text might also be a source of encouragement for you. In our grief, we can know through our tears that God 
has a perfect time for our loved one to go home to be with him. I liked how one old commentator said it. He said it this way. He said, as architects and embroiderers have a plan by which to accomplish their designs, so also God has his plan, his counsel, his purpose, his book, according to which he reigns and does all things, even to the formation of a human body in the womb and the time when he calls one home to glory. So perhaps this Mother's Day is a time of sadness for you because of loss. What does this text have for you? Well, perhaps you will find comfort. We can trust the one who tenderly formed and shaped us at the beginning of our lives with the end of our physical existence as well. He has a plan for us and it's perfect. Men and women, what the psalmist is telling us here is a high view of God. If you can believe this about your God, it will be a strong source of encouragement to you today, no matter what trial you go through. All of this leads David to give one final response in verses 17 and 18. We'll end with this. Look at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I wake and I'm still with you. Here David ends this stanza by saying how precious all these thoughts about God are to him. He takes great pleasure in having a God like this. It seems to me that as I read this text that uh, David goes to bed thinking about these sort of things. And when he awakes, his all-abiding God is still there and these things are on his mind. And so these thoughts for him about the character of God are vast. They're so overwhelming you can't count them. They're like sands in a seashore. I think all of this leads David in the final stanza that we don't have time to look at today to, uh, to really do two things, to question anyone who would try to stand against a God like this and to declare his loyalties to God against his enemies. But then it ends in verses 23 and 24 by David submitting himself under the sovereignty of God and his scrutiny and inspection of his life. So instead of running away from God or fleeing his presence, he ends this way. Look at verse 23. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me, lead me in the everlasting way. Perhaps you're listening to this sermon today and in your soul, You take no comfort in a God like this. In your soul, you're running or fleeing or refusing to submit to God. Won't you submit to him today and his plan? Won't you see that God is a good God who cares for us and who has a plan for us that starts from the beginning of our days before that, the whole way through, 
to the end of our life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this psalm. I think this psalm and its view of God uh, is high and it is exalted. I thank you for David penning this majestic poem. And I pray, Lord, that as we reflect upon the, the presence of God and the knowledge of God and the care of God for us, that each one of us would be encouraged today. I pray for any person listening to this sermon who is fleeing or running from the presence of God or attempting to. I pray that they would see that that is futile. And I pray that you would grip their heart in such a way that they too might say to our creator God, search me and know me, try me and know my thoughts, see if there's grievous ways in me and God lead me, lead me again the way everlasting. Well, thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.